0: The issue we're thinking about tonight is God's free choice, his sovereign choice of his people. God chooses who will be his. He chooses his people solely on the basis of his mercy and on nothing about the person. And he chooses his people for the purpose of his own glory. Let's pray. Father, we want to pray tonight as we hear about these mind-blowing things, that you would humble us before you. You would help us to see the comfort and the joy that come from knowing these things and knowing you. We pray most especially that you'd help us to understand your mercy in all of this and how you are at work for your glory. Help us to glorify you. Amen. You might have heard terms in the past like election, or uh, predestination, that's the kind of terms that turned up in last week's passage and uh, tonight's passage. Ephesians 1 talks about how God chose us before, yeah, sorry, in Christ before the foundation of the world. John 6, Jesus himself says, yeah, No one can come to me unless the Father has, has drawn him, and they will come to me, and I'll never let them go. And uh, it's an idea that I know some people at our church uh, really struggle with. Uh, for others, and maybe for you, it's a new idea. You've not even thought about who picks first. But I want to convince you tonight that it's not just true, but it's full of comfort and unspeakable joy. And I pray that it will actually, you'll find it quite liberating as we take the spotlight away from us and put it squarely on God and on his glorious, merciful plans. But before we get into it, it's worth asking ourselves why does Paul even bring up this issue? Why, why does he raise it? Why, couldn't he just kind of end it at chapter 8, which was so good, you know, and not even raise the prospect of this kind of thing that some people think is a monstrosity? And, and why does he raise it here? What's the context? Uh, as an old saying goes, and I even wrote it on your sheet a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. There you go. And you don't want proof texts. Proof texts do you no good. You want to understand. You know, a text, you've got to get it. A text without a context. If you don't find where it is in its place, it's just a pretext for a proof text. You know. Anyway, uh, you can figure that about later. Because we're not just dealing with isolated doctrine here. There's a reason that Paul raises it, and the context is that we just had announced to us some of the most incredible promises in the whole Bible from God. Uh, Chapter 8 is many people's favourite chapter of the Bible. I know it's been my favourite for about uh, most of my uh, Christian life, since about 1993 when I first read it. Um, In a world full of suffering and struggle, where evil abounds, where God's people battle with their own sins, let alone any other problems, where creation itself groans under the weight of burden of evil, there is something far better ahead. That's the promise in chapter 8, well at least the first promise. God's got a wonderful day when this world of tears will be liberated in his language from its bondage to decay and brought into what Paul describes as the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's the first promise. That's God's end point his goal and God's purpose in the here and now in the midst of it all for us is something God is doing something now in the meantime in our lives verses 28 and 29 bring it to a head and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose for those God foreknew he also predestined there's our word to be conformed to the likeness of his son in other words, if you want to know what God is doing on this earth, if you want to know what God is doing uh, through Jesus, God is calling out a people one by one. Through Jesus, God is calling out a people to belong to him. And having called them out, what God is doing is changing us so that we're no longer conformed to that rebellious Adam who was always shaking his fist at God who we read about in chapter 5. Instead, rather, he's conforming these people more and more to be like Jesus, being transformed in heart and mind so that we love him and his ways, so that we courageously follow him in everything. That's what God is doing in you. That's his second promise there, huge promise. That's what he's doing in you. And the promise goes on that it, that hap- is happening in every single thing that happens. God is doing that work. In all of the struggles, in all of the joys, in all of the pain, God is with us. God is preparing us. God is shaping us to be like Christ. And the most glorious promise of all, I reckon, is right at the end of the chapter. Nothing, absolutely nothing can take away his love from us. For those who is gathered to Jesus Christ, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that's a promise, isn't it? Wow. Wow. I reckon, you know, I I was reading this uh, thing. I should frame that and put that on my front door, you know, for when I come home and when I go out both sides. (laughs) There you go. Wow. If you're with Jesus, he loves you. And he's never letting go. His love is unshakable, it is unstoppable, it is unbreakable. Sounds pretty good, right? But is it too good to be true? Because there's a problem. And it's not a small problem. There is one whacking great counterexample which just might sink the whole thing and mean that none of it's true. See, what about God's other people, the nation of Israel, his Old Testament people? Surely he made them all those same kinds of promises, spectacular promises. And yet what has happened to them? I mean, while a few became the first disciples of Jesus Christ, Paul himself included, the author of this letter, the vast majority in his day and ever since, have stubbornly, defiantly, and willfully rejected Jesus. And they appear to have been abandoned by God, cut off, rejected. In fact, not long after this letter was written, uh, the nation was wiped out by the Roman army, erased. And now you say, Paul, that God's good for his word, that nothing can take away his love, Really? Really? Hasn't God's word of promise to them failed? Now, it's not just an academic question, which a lot of people want to turn this issue of predestination into. It's not an academic question. It's actually a matter of great personal pain. Because in speaking of Israel, Paul's speaking about close friends, uh, neighbours, people he grew up with. He's speaking of family members. I mean, these are aunts and uncles and cousins, perhaps parents who are cut off from God and seem to be heading for their doom to hell. And even as he writes about them, he starts welling up to tears as he thinks about them. And so our chapter, chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of God. Of Israel. Now, it's not hard to grasp, is it? I know many of us feel the same profound pain of an unbelieving child or an unbelieving uh, sister or husband or wife or parent or friend. I mean, if there's anything I could do to make my parents become Christians, uh, I'd do it. If there's anything I could do to make my sister believe it, and come to Christ I'd do that you know and there's awful and painful questions that might flow out from that you know could I should I have done more has there something I failed them in is you know what can I do to make it happen perhaps you've asked those questions of yourself about your friends or family Maybe you've even tried the same bargain with God that Paul has made for their salvation. He says, "I could wish, I could wish that I was cut off in order that they might be saved. I wish I could go to hell if it meant that they could go to heaven." I was talking to a lady at morning tea. She said, I, "I, wish that for my kids. None of them are believers, and if I, if that meant that they would be saved, I would do it." What love and anguish he must have felt to be able to say that. Much in the same way that Moses cried out to God after the incident with the golden calf in Exodus 32. Oh, if only you would destroy me if it could possibly save them. But it's more than personal pain for Paul because it does cast this dark shadow of doubt over God's faithfulness to his promises, particularly when you think about all of the privileges that they had from the hand of God, all of the blessings which flowed. Which just amps up the problem. They had all of the benefits. And so, verse 4, he lists them. He says, Theirs is the adoption of sons. They've always been called the children of God. He says, There's the divine glory. You think how they went through the Red Sea, what they must have been like to have the piles of water on either side and this dry path, and then to watch the army behind be destroyed. They heard the voice of God and met with Him at Mount Sinai. They covered their ears and said, stop talking, it's frightening us. The covenants, theirs is the receiving of the law, that wonderful expression of God's character. There's the temple worship. Now They had God living with them physically. Theirs are the promises, the promises, the precious promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And even Jesus himself comes from that family tree they've got all of those privileges and they've been cut off? And if God's promises appear to have failed for them who he, he was with and gave those things to, and why wouldn't they fail for me? Why wouldn't they fail for you? Who's really safe then? See, it really matters, doesn't it, if God is good for his promises or not. This is a massive pressing pastoral problem for any Christian in any generation at any stage of history who has to take a stand on God's word and say, I'm going to follow Jesus at this point despite what everyone else is doing and saying. Like Martin Luther, it's a 500 year since uh, the Reformation, he nailed uh, his colours to the door uh, of the castle, uh, 500 years since then, Uh, Yeah, he was before the tribunal about to have him killed, and he had his Bible in hand, he said, Here I stand, I can do no other. You want me to believe stuff that's not true? This is what God has said. Here I stand, I can do no other. But if God's word can fail, why would I stake my life on it? Why would I stake my life and my days on his promises? So what's the answer? Has God's word failed? And the answer is no. No, it hasn't. Not at all. It never fails. It cannot fail. God always keeps his promises. Now you can see that in verse 6. He says, it is not as though God's word had failed. That God will never break his promise. And so the question is, what's going on then? What's happened with them? Well, Paul deals with both his pain and the pastoral issue with the same answer. And the answer all turns on this issue of God's free and sovereign choice. God's word has not failed, is the answer. God has always, God's people have always belonged to him, not by religious pedigree or by family connections or history, but, but by his choice, his free choice. His choice is on the basis of mercy and his choice is exercised for his own glory. And we're going to follow those three points through. And and we're going to see why that helps us and why it's so comforting and and helpful to us as we work it through. So first point then, it's all God's choice, his election. Those who are truly God's people have always been called together by God's choice alone. It's never been anything to do with religious pedigree or family connections or things like that. Even even our willpower. That's what he says in verses 6 and 7, doesn't he? It's unmistakable. It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all children of Abraham. To put it bluntly and simply, not because you're simple, but because I am and I need to dumb it down for me, just because you've got an Israeli passport and a Jewish mum and dad and you could even trace your family tree right back to Father Abraham himself, that doesn't mean you are automatically part of God's eternal people. Because not all of Israel are Israel. Now if you think back to school, that's not hard for some of you, you're there. Venn diagrams, who remembers Venn diagrams? Who teaches Venn diagrams? There you go, there uh, you yeah. Yeah, you've got the set, he's the set of all people, the big rectangle. Then you've got the set within that of Israel. Imagine that's a circle here. That's Israel, all of Abraham's descendants. But then there's another set that's within that who are the true Israel. And he's saying not all of Israel are the true Israel. Okay, Not all of Abraham's descendants are all God's people. And to drive it home, God takes two really powerful examples of two blokes who are so closely related to Abraham that if you were to say, if anybody could be in God's family on the basis of DNA or genetics, they would have to be in. They'd, they'd be a shoe-in. And the two examples are Ishmael and Esau. Uh, first one's Ishmael, uh, Isaac's step uh, Isaac, uh, sorry, Abraham's first son. He had another kid before Isaac. He's not mentioned by name in this passage, but you see him in the quote in verse 7 and onwards. The quote was to Abraham, uh, many chapters, right at the start of the Bible, is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? You can't make people, you can't breed people into God's children. It's only God who calls people into his family. And I wonder if you're familiar with the situation that he's describing here. Uh, It's it's from way back on about page 10 of the Bible, depending on which Bible you've got there. Um, See, way back when, God made some incredible promises to to this man, Abraham, Uh, basically along the lines of that all of God's blessings and God's family would come through him, through this man. But there was a slight issue. How do I put it kindly? Uh, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, um, if they came to Barney's, would come to 8 o'clock congregation. Um, They were ancient uh, and crusty. (laughs) Uh, Abraham and his wife Sarah had started doing P&O cruises with all the other retirees long ago. Uh, Sarah was eligible for her senior's travel card uh, and $2.50 anywhere in New South Wales. Uh, And Abraham had been drawing his pension for about 40 years. And they still didn't have any kids. They didn't have any kids. So how's God going to keep this promise? And so Abraham thinks to himself, "Well." I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to do something about this. And so he runs off and has a child with Sarah's slave girl, Hagar, with her blessing. It's kind of a weird situation. But anyway, so they have it off. Then there's a boy and his name is Ishmael. He's the son, right? But then straight afterwards, Abraham is confronted by God and God says to him, No, that is not the way and he is not the one. Rather, this time next year I'll return and Sarah, your elderly wife of 90, she is going to bear you a son. And she did. It's a miracle. And that was Isaac. And God said to Abraham, it's through Isaac and not through Ishmael that your offspring will be reckoned. He is the child of the promise. And so even from Abraham's own two sons, you... You can know that you can't make people for God's family. It just doesn't come through parental effort. It comes through God's promise. But then there's Esau and Jacob, Abraham's twin grandsons, uh, Isaac's children. They're in verses 10, 11 and 12. He says, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father, Isaac. I mean, twins are often conceived at the same time. I'm led to understand, but anyway, uh, it's not worth thinking about. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um And yet he says, before the twins were born, before those twins then, not these ones here, before the twins are born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, mum was told, the older will serve the younger. Now I'm an older brother and that's just not right. (laughs) Okay? Uh, Mitchell's thinking, actually, that's pretty good. <laughs> Jason, be my slave. Anyway, so <laughs> but it's it's not been right in in history. But the older will serve the younger. That's what he's taught. What she Just as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God chose one twin and not the other one. There was nothing to distinguish them, not their looks, not their performance, not their religion, not their morality, because it was even before they were born. They were still in the womb, before they'd done anything good or bad. Not by works, but because of God's free choice, Jacob was set apart. And if you know the history of the two, he was a real dirtbag. I mean, he's a mongrel. Uh, He was a lying, manipulator. We saw a little bit of that. Yeah, your brother's starving to death give me everything you have or will ever get uh, and I'll feed you one meal. <laughs> you know? uh, Esau's an idiot for agreeing, but that's what happens. And so it comes about that God's word is true. But God called this man, he was a terrible father, he played favourites with his children and so uh, they they fought, they even tried to murder one of their brothers because of his, I think, his mistreatment of his family. What a, He was a scumbag. But God called him and turned him him even into the likeness of Christ. Now you can't get two clearer examples of the point of verse 6, can you? That not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all Jews are God's people. It stands with God's choice alone. But think about what that says to our personal pain over our family members who do not know Jesus Christ. The anguish which leads Paul to saying, I wish that I myself were cut off and accursed. But Paul, it's not down to you. It's not down to you. We might want to bargain with God. I would do anything for my unbelieving brothers and sisters. I'd I'd do anything for my unbelieving wife. I mean, I'm speaking theoretically because she's not one. Uh, I, I've got a wife, but she's not an unbeliever. But you get my drift, but... Paul says, I would do anything. I, I would even be cut off myself. I'd even go to hell if it could happen. But God says, you know what? It's not down to you. You can't make it happen. You can't force the issue. Well, think about Australia. Many still, for some reason, maintain that this is a Christian country, You know, part of the Christian West. Uh, it's the great south land of the Holy Spirit. There was a stage... Uh, In history, where nearly everyone in this country went to church and things looked pretty good, there was prosperity going on. Uh, But now, what do we have? Wholesale apostasy, the crime, the depravity, the domestic violence that's happening in the homes around this country. It is the single biggest crime in New South Wales, domestic violence. 400 calls out a day, no, an hour from the police. Um, the wholesale rejection of God's ways for family, for career, for entertainment. Has God's word failed our nation? No. It has never been on the grounds of religious performance or pedigree or past performance or, or history or will. It is on the grounds of God's choice and his choice alone. But let's move on to the second point. God's free choice of who he saves is based on his mercy and on no other category. It's nothing about the person that entices him to choose that person. The, the obvious question you're probably thinking after hearing about Abraham's children or his grandchildren, I think especially the twins, is, but that's just not fair, is it? It's not fair to pick one over there. How could God choose one? I mean, there's nothing to distinguish them. And Paul knows that's exactly the question we're going to come back at God with. You know, side point, you always know you've read the Bible right when it asks the next question that you are about to ask. And so verse question, he poses that very question for us. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Is, is he unfair? That's our question, right? How can it be fair of God to simply single out one, no matter how religious they are or their parents or, or what their history might have been? Or what they would ever be destined to do. It sounds a bit like kind of a land lottery. Alright, um, you get something and, and so do you. Ah, sucked into the rest of you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and Paul answers by simply reminding us that we humans have no religious rights on which to stand. We've got no rights. We've got no claim before God. God's purpose to call out a people to belong to Jesus and to be transformed by him has always been grounded not on rights, but on divine mercy. And he underlines it twice. Verse 15, he says, Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire, what he wants, Or on his effort, what he does. But it only depends on God's mercy. It's even stronger down in verse 18. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. It's all of God's mercy. See, if you were to ask the question of fairness... And demand that God give us exactly what we deserve, what should we get? What is the fair outcome for human beings when it comes to God? If you want God to be fair, there's a terribly flawed basic assumption behind the question of fairness. That somehow we're all morally deserving of God's attentions and his praises. That somehow we're naturally fit for his kingdom and to be his people. But we're so patently and obviously not. Why do you think God has to be in the business of conforming people to the likeness of Jesus Christ? Because we start as nothing like him. You think back to the early chapters of the letter and and the whole argument. You've got to take it as a whole. Chapter 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's what we're like. Or chapter 3 verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Or 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or chapter 6, by nature we are slaves to sin. Or chapter 8 last week, the mind of sinful man is death. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It's unable to. I don't know if you've heard of the posh lady who, she's really rich. And uh, she's a bit up herself as well. And she uh, gets in her best finery and... Uh, engages a an artist to paint her portrait, uh, and she's standing there posing, and she just reminds, "I'm paying you big bucks. Uh, I hope you will do me justice, won't you?" To which he replies, "It's not justice you need; it's mercy. <laughs> it's not justice that you and I need; it's mercy. It's mercy." It's mercy. There is nothing we bring to the party except for our sin. But think about it. If it's mercy alone and nothing whatsoever within us that deserves God's attention, then it's really not a question of fairness at all. God can just have mercy on anyone. He wants to have mercy. There's no such thing as God as deserve and that should drive us to our knees in humble gratitude if we do know Jesus personally because he had to work his incredible mercy in us. It is so humbling that you, you, there was nothing about you that God uh, should love or had to love. And it's so joyous once you do understand the depths of your depravity and sin that God would love you anyway and he would call you in because there's no way you would have chosen him if it had been left to you to choose. It is mercy, it is grace, it is his kindness alone that he saves anybody, that he saves you. But what it should also do is drive us to our knees in prayer for God to show that mercy to other people. Far from being a blockage to prayer, as some people claim that this kind of teaching is, it's actually the basis for prayer. Paul begins the very next chapter. He's he's the strongest chapter in the whole Bible on God's sovereignty. It's his pick. It's him alone. And chapter 10, verse 1, you know what I do? I pray. I pray and I beg God for mercy on my people. It's the basis of prayer. Just as Moses stood and begged God to have mercy on the nation in their rebellion. But let's come back to the passage. Okay, so God freely chooses. He does it on the basis of his own mercy and no other character about us. But that leads to the final point that Paul makes here, that God does it all for his glory, that he might be praised, he might be seen as majestic and wonderful and magnificent. And again, if you look down at verse 19, you can imagine somebody asking that question, can't you? Maybe it's your question still. See it there? Then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? How can he judge us if he's the one who's deciding all this stuff? If it's only through God's choice and by his mercy, then can you really blame Ishmael? Can you really blame Esau can you blame Pharaoh, who's also been mentioned, but we passed over him? Can you blame Pontius Pilate? Can you blame Judas? Can you blame Hitler? Can you blame Pol Pot? Surely they, they were just doing what God had decided they should do. Can't they and we just shrug our shoulders and say, "Oh well, I'll just do what I want and you know what? God's got to suck it up because he's the one who made it all happen. He's the one, all the damage is based on him. Well, Paul answers that by giving us first a warning and then an explanation. And we need to hear both. The warning is in verse 20. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? I don't think Paul is just saying sit down and shut up to any who might ask the question because he couldn't be bothered answering it. I think he's asking us to reflect on the folly of answering God back. How can the pot possibly say to the potter, why did you make me like this? It's an absurd question. I mean, I brought some show and tell. Here's a pot I made at Boys Club earlier this year. Uh, you know, Lynette Goddard came along and, and helped us teach us how to do it and brought the clay and stuff, but I made it, all right? Uh, and you might say, well, why didn't I put handles on it? Uh, you know, why didn't I make it bigger? Surely that would be more useful. Uh, why did I paint it poo brown <laughs> and red on the inside? There you go. Uh, why? Because I didn't. It's a pot I made and I painted it the way I did and and it's actually perfectly fit for the purposes for which I made it. For putting board game pieces in, of course, Uh, on games. You come around on Friday nights and see if you want You use it. (laughs) And if God is God, the maker and creator of us all, who are we to challenge him? And so that's the warning. Remember who you're talking to. Remember who you're talking about. He is God. You're not God. He's the potter, you're a lump of clay. But then he goes on in verse 22 with an explanation. He says, just stop for a moment and from a position of the creature, just ask yourself the question, what if? What if it's like this? What if it's simply that God is patient with those who are on their way to destruction in order that those who he's chosen beforehand have the time to turn to him? And to be part of his people and so that he can do his work in them and transform them to the likeness of Christ that they might glorify him all the more in the end. What if it's like that? Let's read it, verse 22. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destructions? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory. Even us whom he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. I'm mean, on taking away anyway uh, human responsibility. The evil in our hearts plays itself out. Esau is responsible for selling his birthright. Israel uh, it was responsible for rejecting God. Uh, and therefore they've prepared their own way for destruction. They were ready. They were ripe. But even then God held off from his judgments straight away. Ishmael was provided for by God. Esau was well looked after and he became a great nation in fact. Pharaoh went on for years and years spitting in God's face and denying his power. God is patient even with those who are destined for destruction. And you know what? He even promised the hardening of Israel's hearts for a purpose. That the Gentiles might receive the gospel, that the word might go out, that the gospel might go to the ends of the earth, that God might draw in people from all over this world, every nation and tongue and tribe and language, that they might become his people. And on that last day when we stand face to face with him in glory as those who are saved, we're going to marvel at just how glorious his mercy is that he is that he was so patient with others while they lived, but even more just how incredibly patient and merciful he was towards us. His mercy in giving his Son Jesus to die on the cross, his mercy in giving us the Spirit who prays for us even when we don't know what to pray. He's giving us His Spirit to cleanse us and to remake us from the inside out and, and uh, in giving us his word with its incredible promises that nothing can take away his love from us, neither height nor depth nor anything else can separate us from his love in Jesus Christ our Lord. God is good for his word. See, when we get before the judgment throne, who are we going to be thanking that we're there and that we've made it in? You know what I'm going to I'm going to thank myself. I'm going to, (laughs) you're awesome. God, you're so lucky. God's so lucky that He let you into His home. Really? That's not going to happen. We'll be thanking God for His kindness and His mercy and His grace and love. We'll be thanking Him that He didn't destroy us as He ought to have, which would have been fair, but that He saved us for Himself. God is good for His word. It will never fail. He chooses those who he's going to save. He does it all by his mercy and he does it all for his glory. Now I know that that doesn't answer every question and issue about this subject that you might have or that others might have asked you. There's a lot more things going on. There's a lot more implications from all of this. Uh, in fact, we're, we're doing the stretch night in uh, the next holidays coming up on this issue. Because because I think we need to tease it out and see how it works and ask our questions and engage with it and and, and test it out. Is that really what the scriptures are saying elsewhere, not just here? Um, And is it true? And so I I urge you to put that when we announce the date. It's October the 5th, I think it is. Make sure you're there for the stretch night on on predestination and election. But there's there's also implications too that I think we're going to be seeing on the night. But I just want to leave you with two, and I'll speak about them very briefly. One, the question of evangelism: um, Why bother sharing Jesus if God's already picked? And some people think it's a great blockage to evangelism. There's no reason we'd ever go out and risk, you know, being hated. You know, if God's going to bring him in anyway. Well, actually predestination is the basis for evangelism because you know what? God's got his people out there somewhere. We've got to go and find them. He's commissioned us to go and tell everyone that those people might hear and turn to him. And you know, we can go with confidence and we can also go not feeling the burden that other people's salvation rests on the strength of our argument or the power of our convictions, or the passion with which we speak. We're just going to speak the truth and God will do his work in those who he's chosen. Second issue, how do I know if I'm one of the chosen ones? I mean, a lot of people have doubts about that. How do I know if I'm one of them, if that's who gets to pick? Good question. You'll have to come back next week because it's answered then. Make sure you're at church next week. I know. Bob Bob and Bob alone can listen to next week's sermon online. There you go. Let me pray. Let me lead us in prayer. God, you say that you'll have mercy on whom you want to have mercy and have compassion on whom you want to have compassion. And so, Father God, we thank you for your incredible love and mercy to us, for your very great and precious promises in Jesus Christ, our Lord, that you would call us who are unworthy, to be part of your family, your children, that you would set your love on us. We thank you for your promise that you'll never leave us, that you'll never forsake us, that you'll never abandon us if we're yours. Help us to humble ourselves before you. You are the potter. We are the clay in your hands. Please mould us and shape us more and more into the likeness of your dear son, Jesus. And Father, because it's all of your mercy, we pray for our children and our brothers and sisters, our families, our parents. I pray for my sister and my parents. I pray for our friends. We pray for the historic denominations in our country that are falling apart and seem to have abandoned your ways. We pray for this great city with its millions of people and this great country with its millions of people living in darkness. We pray for our nation on the brink of turning even further from your ways and we ask that you would be gracious and you would pour out your mercy, that you would turn your merciful hands to our families and to our nation and we ask it, Father, for your glory, not for our glory, not for our promotion, but for your promotion, for the glory of your wonderful name, that many, many people from this city and this nation, from our families and community, would be transformed by you into the likeness of Jesus Christ for the praise of your eternal glory. We ask it, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, your only Son, the glorious one who is forever praised. Amen.